0: Welcome to today's Triple Z. The Triple Z Podcast is a daily program that you can use to help you fall asleep each night. Just turn down the volume, lay back, relax, and enjoy as you fall asleep. The Last of the Mohicans is a historical novel by James Fenimore Cooper, first published in 1826. It is the second book of the Leatherstocking Tales Pentalogy and the best-known. The story is set in 1757 during the French and Indian War, the Seven Years' War, when France and Great Britain battled for control of North America. The novel is known for its detailed description of wilderness and frontier life and for its exploration of the cultural conflict between the European settlers and the native tribes of North America. It also features themes of heroism, love, and tragedy, and a moving exploration of the eventual fate of the native tribes. If you enjoy our program, please be sure to write us a review on your podcast platform and share us with a friend, you both might sleep just a little better at night. Our website is triple Z, that's three zsmedia You can also like and share our content on Facebook or our Instagram account, ZZZ Media Podcast. Music for today's episode was provided by Gaia's Symphony on Apple Music. Chapter 27. Hint. I shall remember when Caesar says do this, it is performed. Julius Caesar. The impatience of the savages who lingered about the prison of Uncas, as has been seen, had overcome their dread of the conjurer's breath. They stole cautiously, and with beating hearts, to a crevice through which the faint light of the fire was glimmering. For several minutes they mistook the form of David for that of their prisoner, but the very accident which Hawkeye had foreseen occurred. Tired of keeping the extremities of his long person so near together, the singer gradually suffered the lower limbs to extend themselves until one of his misshapen feet actually came in contact with and shoved aside the embers of the fire. At first, the Hurons believed the Delaware had been thus deformed by witchcraft. But when David, unconscious of being observed, turned his head and exposed his simple, mild countenance, In place of the haughty lineaments of their prisoner it would have exceeded the credulity of even a native to have doubted any longer. They rushed together into the lodge and laying their hands with but little ceremony on their captive immediately detected the imposition. Then arose the cry first heard by the fugitives. It was succeeded by the most frantic and angry demonstrations of vengeance. David However, firm in his determination to cover the retreat of his friends, was compelled to believe that his own final hour had come. Deprived of his book and his pipe, he was fain to trust to a memory that rarely failed him on such subjects, and breaking forth in a loud and impassioned strain, he endeavored to soothe his passage into the other world by singing the opening verse of a funeral anthem. The Indians were seasonably reminded of his infirmity and rushing into the open air, they aroused the village in the manner described. A native warrior fights as he sleeps without the protection of anything defensive. The sounds of the alarm were therefore hardly uttered before 200 men were afoot and ready for the battle or the chase as either might be required. The escape was soon known and the whole tribe crowded in a body around the council lodge impatiently awaiting the instruction of their chiefs. In such a sudden demand on their wisdom, the presence of the cunning Magua could scarcely fail of being needed. His name was mentioned and all looked round in wonder that he did not appear. Messengers were then dispatched to his lodge, requiring his presence. In the meantime, some of the swiftest and most discreet of the young men were ordered to make the circuit of the clearing under cover of the woods in order to ascertain that their suspected neighbors, the Delawares, designed no mischief. Women and children ran to and fro, and in short, the whole encampment exhibited another scene of wild and savage confusion. Gradually, however, these symptoms of disorder diminished and in a few minutes the oldest and most distinguished chiefs were assembled in the lodge in grave consultation. The clamour of many voices soon announced that a party approached, who might be expected to communicate some intelligence that would explain the mystery of the novel surprise. The crowd without gave way, and several warriors entered the place, bringing with them the hapless conjurer who had been left so long by the scout in duress. Notwithstanding, this man was held in very unequal estimation among the hearers, some believing implicitly in his power and others deeming him an impostor, he was now listened to by all with the deepest attention. When his brief story was ended, the father of the sick woman stepped forth, and, in a few pithy expressions, related, in his turn, what he knew. These two narratives gave a proper direction to the subsequent inquiries, which were now made with the characteristic cunning of savages. Instead of rushing in a confused and disorderly throng to the cavern, ten of the wisest and firmest among the chiefs were selected to prosecute the investigation. As no time was to be lost, the instant the choice was made, the individuals appointed rose in a body and left the place without speaking. On reaching the entrance, the younger men in advance made way for their seniors, and the whole proceeded along the low, dark gallery with the firmness of warriors ready to devote themselves to the public good, though, at the same time secretly doubting the nature of the power with which they were about to contend. The outer apartment of the cavern was silent and gloomy. The woman lay in her usual place and posture, though there were those present who affirmed they had seen her born to the woods by the supposed medicine of the white men. Such a direct and palpable contradiction of the tale related by the father caused all eyes to be turned on him. Chafed by the silent imputation and inwardly troubled by so unaccountable a circumstance, the chief advanced to the side of the bed and, stooping, cast an incredulous look at the features as if distrusting their reality. His daughter was dead. The unerring feeling of nature for a moment prevailed and the old warrior hid his eyes in sorrow. Then recovering his self-possession, he faced his companions and pointing towards the corpse, he said in the language of his people, the wife of my young man has left us. The great spirit is angry with his children. The mournful intelligence was received in solemn silence. After a short pause, one of the elder Indians was about to speak when a dark-looking object was seen rolling out of an adjoining apartment into the very center of the room where they stood. Ignorant of the nature of the beings they had to deal with, The whole party drew back a little and gazed in admiration until the object fronted the light and rising on end exhibited the distorted but still fierce and sullen features of Magua. The discovery was succeeded by a general exclamation of amazement. As soon, however, as the true situation of the chief was understood, several ready knives appeared and his limbs and tongue were quickly released. The Huron arose and shook himself like a lion quitting his lair. Not a word escaped him, though his hand played convulsively with the handle of his knife, while his lowering eyes skinned the whole party as if they sought an object suited to the first burst of his vengeance. It was happy for Uncas and the scout, and even David, that they were all beyond the reach of his arm at such a moment, for, assuredly, no refinement and cruelty would then have deferred their deaths in opposition to the promptings of the fierce temper that nearly choked him. Meeting everywhere faces that he knew as friends, the savage grated his teeth together like rasps of iron and swallowed his passion for one of a victim on whom to vent it. This exhibition of anger was noted by all present, and, from an apprehension of exasperating a temper that was already chafed nearly to madness, several minutes were suffered to pass before another word was uttered. When, however, suitable time had elapsed, the oldest of the party spoke. My friend has found an enemy, he said. Is he nigh that the Hurons may take revenge? Let the Delaware die, exclaimed Magua in a voice of thunder. Another long and expressive silence was observed and was broken, as before, with due precaution by the same individual. The Mohican is swift of foot and leaps far, he said, but my young men are on his trail. Is he gone? demanded Magua, in tones so deep and guttural that they seemed to proceed from his inmost chest. An evil spirit has been among us, and the Delaware has blinded our eyes. An evil spirit, repeated the other, mockingly, tis the spirit that has taken the lives of so many Hurons, the spirit that slew my young men at the Tumbling River, that took their scalps at the Healing Spring, and who has now bound the arms of Le Renard Subtle. Of whom does my friend speak? Of the dog who carries the heart and cunning of a Huron under a pale skin long, long carabin. The pronunciation of so terrible a name produced the usual effect among his auditors. But when time was given for reflection, and the warriors remembered that their formidable and daring enemy had even been in the bosom of their encampment, working injury, fearful rage took the place of wonder and all those fierce passions with which the bosom of Magwa had just been struggling were suddenly transferred to his companions. Some among them gnashed their teeth in anger, others vented their feelings and yells, and some, again, beat the air as frantically as if the object of their resentment were suffering under their blows. But this sudden outbreaking of temper has quickly subsided in the still and sullen restraint they most affected, in their moments of inaction. Magwa, who had in his turn found leisure for reflection, now changed his manner and assumed the air of one who knew how to think and act with a dignity worthy of so grave a subject. Let us go to my people, he said, they wait for us. His companions consented in silence and the whole of the savage party left the cavern and returned to the council lodge. When they were seated, all eyes turned on Magua, who understood from such an indication that, by common consent, they had devolved the duty of relating what had passed on him. He arose and told his tale without duplicity or reservation. The whole deception practiced by both Duncan and Hawkeye was, of course, laid naked and no room was found even for the most superstitious of the tribe any longer to affix a doubt on the character of the occurrences it was but too apparent that they had been insultingly shamefully disgracefully deceived when he had ended and resumed his seat The collected tribe for his auditors, in substance, included all the fighting men of the party sat regarding each other like men astonished equally at the audacity and the success of their enemies. The next consideration, however, was the means and opportunities for revenge. Additional pursuers were sent on the trail of the fugitives, and then the chiefs applied themselves in earnest to the business of consultation. Many different expedients were proposed by the elder warriors in succession to all of which Magwa was a silent and respectful listener. That soul savage had recovered his artifice and self-command and now proceeded towards his object with his customary caution and skill. It was only when each one disposed to speak had uttered his sentiments that he prepared to advance his own opinions. They were given with additional weight from the circumstance that some of the runners had already returned and reported that their enemies had been traced so far as to leave no doubt of their having sought safety in the neighboring camp of their suspected allies, the Delawares. With the advantage of possessing this important intelligence, the chief warily laid his plans before his fellows and, as might have been anticipated from his eloquence and cunning, they were adopted without a dissenting voice. They were, briefly, as follows, both in opinions and in motives. It has been already stated that, in obedience to a policy rarely departed from, the sisters were separated so soon as they reached the Huron village. Magua had early discovered that in retaining the person of Alice, he possessed the most effectual check on Cora. When they parted, therefore, he kept the former within reach of his hand, consigning the one he most valued to the keeping of their allies. The arrangement was understood to be merely temporary, and was made as much with a view to flatter his neighbors as in obedience to the invariable rule of Indian policy while goaded incessantly by those revengeful impulses that in a savage seldom slumber, the chief was still attentive to his more permanent personal interests. The follies and disloyalty committed in his youth were to be expiated by a long and painful penance, ere he could be restored to the full enjoyment of the confidence of his ancient people, and without confidence, there could be no authority in an Indian tribe. In this delicate and arduous situation, the crafty native had neglected no means of increasing his influence and one of the happiest of his expedients had been the success with which he had cultivated the favor of their powerful and dangerous neighbors. The result of his experiment had answered all the expectations of his policy, for the Hurons were in no degree exempt from that governing principle of nature, which induces man to value his gifts precisely in the degree that they are appreciated by others. But, while he was making this ostensible sacrifice to general considerations, Magua never lost sight of his individual motives. The latter had been frustrated by the unlooked for events which had placed all his prisoners beyond his control, and he now found himself reduced to the necessity of suing for favors to those whom it had so lately been his policy to oblige. Several of the chiefs had proposed deep and treacherous schemes to surprise the Delawares, and by gaining possession of their camp, to recover their prisoners by the same blow, for all agreed that their honor, their interests, and the peace and happiness of their dead countrymen imperiously required them speedily to immolate some victims to their revenge. But plans so dangerous to attempt, and of such doubtful issue, Magwa found little difficulty in defeating. He exposed their risk and fallacy with his usual skill, and it was only after he had removed every impediment in the shape of opposing advice that he ventured to propose his own projects. He commenced by flattering the self-love of his auditors, a never-failing method of commanding attention. When he had enumerated the many different occasions on which the Hurons had exhibited their courage and prowess in the punishment of insults, he digressed in a high encomium on the virtue of wisdom. He painted the quality, as forming the great point of difference between the beaver and other brutes, between brutes and men, and, finally, between the Hurons, in particular, and the rest of the human race. After he had sufficiently extolled the property of discretion, he undertook to exhibit in what manner its use was applicable to the present situation of their tribe. On the one hand, he said, was their great pale father, the governor of the Canadas, who had looked upon his children with a heart since their tomahawks had been so red, on the other, a people as numerous as themselves, who spoke a different language, possessed different interests, and loved them not, and who would be glad of any pretense to bring them in disgrace with the great white chief. Then he spoke of their necessities, of the gifts they had a right to expect for their past services, of their distance from their proper hunting grounds and native villages, and of the necessity of consulting prudence more and inclination less, in so critical circumstances. When he perceived that, while the old man applauded his moderation, many of the fiercest and most distinguished of the warriors listened to these politic plans with lowering looks, he cunningly led them back to the subject which they most loved. He spoke openly of the fruits of their wisdom, which he boldly pronounced would be a complete and final triumph over their enemies. He even darkly hinted that their success might be extended, with proper caution, in such a manner as to include the destruction of all whom they had reason to hate. In short, he so blended the warlike with the artful, the obvious with the obscure, as to flatter the propensities of both parties and to lead to each subject of hope while neither could say it clearly comprehended his intentions. The orator, or the politician, who can produce such a state of things is commonly popular with his contemporaries, however he may be treated by posterity. All perceived that more was meant than was uttered, and each one believed that the hidden meaning was precisely such as his own faculties enabled him to understand or his own wishes led him to anticipate. In this happy state of things, it is not surprising that the management of Magwa prevailed. The tribe consented to act with deliberation, and with one voice they committed the direction of the whole affair to the government of the chief who had suggested such wise and intelligible expedients. Mogwa had now attained one great object of all his cunning and enterprise. The ground he had lost in the favor of his people was completely regained, and he found himself even placed at the head of affairs. He was, in truth, their ruler, and, so long as he could maintain his popularity, no monarch could be more despotic, especially while the tribe continued in a hostile country. Throwing off Therefore, the appearance of consultation, he assumed the grave air of authority necessary to support the dignity of his office. Runners were dispatched for intelligence in different directions, spies were ordered to approach and feel the encampment of the Delawares, the warriors were dismissed to their lodges with an intimation that their services would soon be needed, and the women and children were ordered to retire with a warning that it was their province to be silent. When these several arrangements were made, Magua passed through the village, stopping here and there to pay a visit where he thought his presence might be flattering to the individual. He confirmed his friends in their confidence, fixed the wavering and gratified all. Then he sought his own lodge. The wife the Huron chief had abandoned when he was chased from among his people was dead. Children he had none, and he now occupied a hut without companion of any sort. It was in fact the dilapidated and solitary structure in which David had been discovered and whom he had tolerated in his presence on those few occasions when they met with the contemptuous indifference of a haughty superiority. Hither then Magua retired when his labors of policy were ended while others slept, however, he neither knew nor sought repose. Had there been one sufficiently curious to have watched the movements of the newly elected chief, he would have seen him seated in a corner of his lodge, musing on the subject of his future plans from the hour of his retirement to the time he had appointed for the warriors to assemble again. Occasionally the air breathed through the crevices of the hut, and the low flames that fluttered about the embers of the fire threw their wavering light on the person of the sullen recluse. At such moments it would not have been difficult to have fancied the dusky savage the Prince of Darkness, brooding on his own fancied wrongs and plotting evil. Long before the day dawned, however, Warrior after warrior entered the solitary hut of Magwa until they had collected to the number of twenty. Each bore his rifle and all the other accoutrements of war, though the paint was uniformly peaceful. The entrance of these fierce-looking beings was unnoticed, some seating themselves in the shadows of the place, and others standing like motionless statues until the whole of the designated band was collected. Then Malwa arose and gave the signal to proceed, marching himself in advance. They followed their leader singly, and in that well-known order which has obtained the distinguishing appellation of Indian file. Unlike other men engaged in the spirits during business of war, they stole from their camp unostentatiously and unobserved, resembling a band of gliding specters, more than warriors seeking the bubble reputation by deeds of desperate daring. Instead of taking the path which led directly towards the camp of the Delawares, Malwa led his party for some distance down the windings of the stream and along the little artificial lake of the Beavers. The day began to dawn as they entered the clearing which had been formed by those sagacious and industrious animals. Though Magua, who had resumed his ancient garb, bore the outline of a fox on the dressed skin which formed his robe, there was one chief of his party who carried the beaver as his peculiar symbol or totem. There would have been a species of profanity in the omission had this man passed so powerful a community of his fancy kindred without bestowing some evidence of his regard. Accordingly, he paused and spoke in words as kind and friendly as if he were addressing more intelligent beings. He called the animals his cousins and reminded them that his protecting influence was the reason they remained unharmed while so many avaricious traders were prompting the Indians to take their lives. He promised a continuance of his favours, and admonished them to be grateful. After which, he spoke of the expedition in which he was himself engaged and intimated, but with sufficient delicacy and circumlocution, the expediency of bestowing on their relative a portion of that wisdom for which they were so renowned. During the utterance of this extraordinary address, the companions of the speaker were as grave and as attentive to his language as though they were all equally impressed with its propriety. Once or twice black objects were seen rising to the surface of the water, and the Huron expressed pleasure, conceding that his words were not bestowed in vain. Just as he had ended his address, the head of a large beaver was thrust from the door of a lodge whose earthen walls had been much injured, and which the party had believed, from its situation, to be uninhabited. Such an extraordinary sign of confidence was received by the orator as a highly favorable omen, and though the animal retreated a little precipitately, he was lavish of his thanks and commendations. When Magua thought sufficient time had been lost in gratifying the family affection of the warrior, he again made the signal to proceed. As the Indians moved away in a body and with a step that would have been inaudible to the ears of any common man, the same venerable looking beaver once more ventured his head from its cover. Had any of the Hurons turned to look behind them, they would have seen the animal watching their movements with an interest and sagacity that might easily have been mistaken for reason. Indeed, so very distinct and intelligible were the devices of the quadruped that even the most experienced observer would have been at a loss to account for its actions until the moment when the party entered the forest, when the whole would have been explained by seeing the entire animal issue from the lodge, uncassing by the act the grave features of Chingachgook from his mask of fur.